0: Well, if you're just joining us, what we're doing is we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we understand that it's not just a historical event, but it is living and active for us as Christians. And today, I want to share a story with you that Jesus shared in the New Testament. It was a parable that he told in Luke 15. And what I want to do is I want to take a very familiar story that you've probably heard your entire life, specifically if you've grown up in church. How many of you ever heard the story of the prodigal son? I want to share this story with you and then I want to actually tell you why it's so significant because I think that it points to the significance of the cross and the significance of the resurrection. But before I read the story, let me set it up to you. There's three main characters in this story. There's the younger son who's the prodigal. Now, prodigal simply means defined, it's reckless. A prodigal is somebody who takes something that he had and he begins to be reckless with what he was given. It's the complaint that we hear of my generation. So I come from the millennial generation. I'm 32 years old and I hear this all the time with people in my generation. Oh, they're just entitled. Ever hear this? They're, they're, They're entitled. So this is the prodigal. And then you have the older brother and then you have the father. Now, when we hear this story, most of us think that this entire story is about the prodigal son. Although he's a character in the story, the focus is not about the prodigal, although we think it is. When you read the scriptures, it is very clear that the main character in this parable is the father. The word father in the text is mentioned over 20 times, and the word prodigal is only mentioned one time. When you read this story, I want you to read it through this lens. It's about this father who recklessly loves a son who doesn't deserve it. Sound familiar? It's about this father that is pursuing his son, that is pursuing his daughter, wherever you're at in your life, whatever you've done, it's about this father who won't stop pursuing regardless of what you've done. Now, let me give you an overview of the story before we read it. So we pick it up, and the younger son makes a declaration to his dad. He says, Dad, if I'm being quite honest, I don't care about your rules. I don't want to live underneath this house anymore. I want my property. I want my money. I want what you owe me. And I'll be on my way. I'll be on my way. How many know that would be extremely offensive? In our culture, this is like the Southern mom would come out and backhand somebody, right? Now, in that day and age, according to Levitical law, if a reckless son came to his father and disrespected him like that, according to Levitical law, the father could take that son out in the streets and stone his own son without any repercussions. He could do one of two things. He could stone him or he could go to the neighbors and everybody that lived in that community and he could say, this is my son. I completely reject him. I no longer own him as my son and nobody in this community is going to help him. Nobody. So if we're quite honest If we dive in to who we really are and what our sin actually says about ourselves, oftentimes it says this, God, I don't really want a relationship with you. I just want your stuff. just want your stuff. God, I'm not interested in communing with you. I'm not interested in connecting with you. My bank account's really struggling. So if you could feel that, that would be nice. I need another car. So if you could get me one of those, that would be awesome. And we've created this entire gospel that God is like this genie and fairy in the sky that just gives us stuff. And we're happy with him as long as he's supplying our needs. But the truth is, our father is so much more than that. He doesn't want to just give you stuff. He wants to know you. Nobody wants to be in a relationship or in a marriage where they're just like, hey, this is contractual. You give me stuff, I'll give you stuff. That's all we need, right? No, you want to be in an intimate relationship with that spouse. I want to know you. I want to know your fears. I want to know your worries. I want to know your joys. I want to know your pleasures. I want to know all of those things. But what we're going to read in this story is we're going to see a, father, a, a, a son who is so reckless, who squanders everything, who lives this life of entitlement, takes his father's inheritance, blows it, And then we see this father who recklessly pursues this son, regardless of what he does. So we pick it up in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. So Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Listen how entitled that sounds. Hey, give me what is owed to me. Think about the ramifications of that. If you're the dad, if you're the father, You're going, son, you have no idea how long it took me to save this money. I look at some of my older kids, and they don't understand the value of a dollar, right? They just don't get it. It's like, well, why can't we just go on vacation here? And why can't we just buy this? And Why can't we eat out every day? Because it's hard work to make money, right? This is that son. But what we see in this passage if we're being honest with ourselves that we don't really want God in our lives, we just want his stuff. We just want his stuff. And most of us want to be in charge. You want to be in control and you want to be the point of life. And the problem is when Jesus comes in and he's Lord, you no longer can be Lord of your own life, (laughs) And so it puts you at this juxtaposition of like, well, what do I do now? Because God comes in and he says, no, 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 I'm in control. But you've been driving for a long time, right? <laughs> you ever had that like passenger driver? My wife. <laughs> <laughs> ah! <laughs> like I can't tell you how many times I've almost killed all of us because she screamed. And I thought somebody was about to kill us. And I swerved the car and almost died. You know and I'm talking about... I'm just. My wife is going to kill me for that later. Here's the truth: you can't be Lord when God really shows up. You can't be God when He really shows up. Now, there's this surprise that comes in the story. In Luke 15, verse 13, the son comes up to his father. The son is entitled. He says, "Give me what's owed to me." In South Louisiana, there's something called, son, get out of here, (laughs) right? You don't owe any. I don't have to give you anything. And then there's this weird thing that happens in verse 13. And the father divided his property among them, and he gave it to him. He gave it to him. Why would he give his son something that he doesn't even deserve? This leads me to point one. God loves you even when you've rejected him. God loves you even when you've rejected him. Before you've repented, before you've wanted to come home, God set his love on you and he's never stopped loving you. Some of you buy into this system that if you had a good week this week, you didn't sin a whole lot, that God's pleased with you. And then you have a bad week and somebody sets you off and you curse out everybody around you. And you sin a whole lot that week that God is not pleased with you and you have to earn your way back to the Father. And it's this game of ping pong that we play back and forth. Well, I'm good this week, God's happy with I'm bad this week, God's mad at me. I gotta earn my way back. But the truth is God loves you even when you've rejected him. God loves you even when you don't deserve it. This is the cross. Read Luke 15 verse 13, it says, not many days later. I noticed this yesterday as I was studying for this. I always read the story and just breezed through that part where I thought that the son went up to the father. He asked him for his stuff. He took the money and he left, but he didn't. He goes, I want what's owed to me. The father gives it to him. The son has everything. And then he goes back to his room. (laughs) He goes back to his room And he begins to contemplate all of the ramifications of what's going to happen if he leaves. And I would just imagine there's two things going on in his head. Man, I got a pile of cash. I'll never have to have a worry again. People are going to like me. I'm going to have friends. I'm going to move to a faraway country. I don't have to be underneath my dad, underneath his rules. And then I also think that there's two things going on in his head. So he's thinking that, and the other thing is going... But if I make this decision, I can never come home. I can never come home. Dad will never accept me. I'll never be welcome back here. My neighbors will never understand why I had to do what I had to do. And then it says, not many days later, he goes, you know what? I processed it all. I'm out. The younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. It's usually what sin does, isn't it? You take everything that you thought that you needed and you get to this place and then all of a sudden, it's not what you thought it would be. Verse 15, so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now, according to a Jewish boy, this was the lowest job. Pig was an unclean animal to a Jewish man. You didn't touch them. You weren't around them. So in order for him to take this job, it was literally the lowest job in Israel. And it says in verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Which leads me to point two. You got to hear this. God loves you at your darkest. God did not die on a cross because you earned it. He died on a cross because you're worth it. Not because you earned it. Not because you were good last week. But because you were worth it. Think about it. This prodigal lived a life where he dove into sin, and for a moment, it was everything that he thought he needed. I remember growing up in church and had people tell me certain things when they would disapprove of what I was doing. You know, sin, it's just, it's not fun. I'm like, then you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Right? Because here's the problem. It is fun for a season. It is fun for a season. And then here's what happens. Life catches up with you at 30 years old. You go, man, why is my marriage wreck? Oh my, why do I have all this shame, this guilt, and this anxiety, and this depression? Where is this coming from? Because sin is fun for a season, but I'll tell you what, sin will always make you do things that you said you would never do, and it'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. So the prodigal son finds himself in a pig pen longing to eat what they were eating. And he begins to have this realization. When I was home, I had everything I needed. I was underneath the umbrella of my father's blessing and protection. I wasn't a slave to anybody. I was a son. This should give you a clear picture of what our sin really does. It usually starts off great, but it ends in tragedy, doesn't it? But contrary to what you may believe or think this morning, God loves you at your darkest so I want, I want to give you this illustration. Anybody remember in the 90s, they had these things, they would sell them split screen TVs where you could watch one thing on one side and the other thing on the other side. It was the worst invention ever. It was like you couldn't figure out which one to watch. Which one do I watch? to I turn this volume up? to turn it? Then you had both of them going on at the same time. But just imagine for a moment this story in split screen. On one side of the screen, you have a prodigal squandering, wasting all of his money. You would look at this scene and go, man, whatever consequences he has coming, he deserves every single one of them. You ever looked at somebody? We say this all the time. Well, you made your bed, so now you need to lay in it, right? So you got this this picture of this son squandering his father's inheritance. And you would think on the other side, of the screen is this father who's going, I can't believe him. I raised him better than that. I raised him better than that. I can't believe he's doing some of these things. I never taught him to do that. But according to this story, that is not what the father's doing. According to this story, there's a father that's pleading out, saying, God, I'll take him back anyway. He comes. Broken, busted up. There's a father hitting his knees going, I just want my son to come home. I just want my son to come home. Because on the other side of this screen is this father's never ending, never stopping, never giving up love. Then Luke 15 verse 17 says this, but when he came to himself, have you ever gotten so low in life that you finally go, maybe my way's not working. <laughs> maybe my way's not working. This is the prodigal. He said, oh, my father's servants have it better than I do. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So point number three, God loves you as he brings you back. See, in the story, it may sound like the the son chooses to come back, but I want you to know it was the father that drew him back. The son began to reflect on how good he had it when he was home. Could it be that if you feel like God is flipping over tables in your life right now, and you're asking the question, God, I just don't understand. Why am I walking through this? Why am I going through this? Could it be that God is not satisfied to leave you lost and that he's willing to do whatever he needs to take to draw you back home? And usually his mechanism of doing that is pain. How many of you ever washed your car keys? Anybody ever lose your keys? A few weeks ago, I lost my keys at a meeting at 9:30. I was like, I'll leave my house at 9:15, right? And I go, to the normal spot. <laughs> There's no normal spot. that I put my keys in my house. To be, be honest. I was about to lie to y'all, but I just caught it. <laughs> like I put them every. I'm always like, where's my keys? And so I go and I'm looking at all the normal spots that I usually put my keys, and I cannot find them. So when you have six children, you recruit every single one of them. Even my one-year-old, I'm like, "You're looking for keys, okay? What?" <laughs> They're all looking for keys. You're, you're flipping over coffee tables. You're looking underneath chairs. You're pulling up the couch cushions, going, "Oh my God, how long has that French fry been there?" You're putting it back down. You're moving on to the next thing, right? I'm running around frantically. Where's my keys? I got a meeting, I got to leave, I got to, I'm got. i going to be late. And I hear, ding, ding, ding. I'm like, oh, thank God they found them. They pulled them out of the trash can. Like dripping in goo and just like, oh God, you don't care at that point, right? You're like, I found my keys. Now, why do we run around our house frantically searching for these keys? Because we're not satisfied with walking to work, said no one ever in South Louisiana, Right? You're not like, you know what? No big deal, guys. Don't find the keys. I'm going to just walk 15 miles to work. It's a normal thing. <laughs> no, we don't do that. We look for the keys because we're not settled walking to work. This is how God feels when one of his children are lost. He's willing to come into your home, into your life, and begin to flip everything around. And you're looking back going, what, what in the world is going on? God, what are you doing? He says, pause. <laughs> Here's what I'm doing. I love you so much that I'll draw you back at any means necessary. Now, it's one thing to lose a key. It's another thing to lose a child, isn't it? And if you lose a child, your entire life is changed forever. You're never the same. Never. A few years ago, my wife was away, and I had the responsibility of watching the kids. And I lost the kid in my own house. So we're all looking around. It's Peter. It's always Peter. <laughs> so we're all looking around, and five minutes go by. Ten minutes goes by. Fifteen minutes goes by. My oldest son, he comes, he's like, dad, we we can call mom. I said, if you call mom, you're grounded for life. <laughs> Do not call mom. Mom cannot know that this happened, <laughs> you know? Don't call mom. So we're all looking, and then like 20 minutes goes by, and as a parent, what are you thinking? Oh, my God, he walked outside. Somebody took him. He's abducted. He's gone, never going to see him again. I'm frantic or searching all over the place, and then in a faint distance, I hear, hell. You know, as a parent, it's that sign of relief of like, oh, thank God they're here. I don't know where they're at. I'm going to kill them. They're dead. They are dead, right? Help. He had locked himself in a closet and he couldn't get out. You know, as a parent, like when you finally find your kid, like there's nothing logical that comes out of your mouth at that moment. (laughs) You're just like, you don't ever go in closets again, all right? (laughs) But it made me think. I could not imagine losing a child. It would change me forever. Our family would be different. Our environment would be different. Everything would be different. This is the same way that God feels about any child, son, or daughter that is outside of his family. He goes, I love them so much, I'm going to keep pursuing No matter what stage of the journey of life that they're in, he said, I mean, I'll flip tables over if I have to. I'll cut down walls that you don't want me to cut down. I'll cause something in your life to wake you up so I can get you back in the family. He loves us so much that he is willing to allow you to go through pain. The Father will intentionally arrange circumstances in your life to catch your attention so that he can draw you back to himself. Now, you may feel extremely unworthy. You may feel guilty. You may feel shameful for the past. But I want you to know that the Father is recklessly pursuing you even if you find yourself in the darkness today. Number four, God loves you as he extends radical grace to make all things new. Now, in this story, we're going to read it in a moment, but the father gives his son three gifts. The first one he gives him is a robe. The father literally takes his robe off, and he clothes his son with this robe, and it is a sign of saying, son, this is mine, and whatever is mine is now yours. What I love about this story is when the son finally comes home, the father does not shame him in the least. He doesn't say, Where's my money? Where have you been? I can't believe you. I didn't raise you this way. He just goes, You're my son in your home. Welcome home. Let's throw a party. So he gives him the rope. Then the second thing that he gives him blows my mind. He gives him a ring. Now, they didn't have cash, paper money, debit cards, credit cards back in the day. So on their rings was a stamp. And when you went to the store, you left your seal. And that's how they knew that you owed something, that you paid for it. So imagine this. The son comes home. He squandered all the father's money. And then the father goes, here's my credit card. That is the love that looks past the past. And says, I don't love you based on what you've done. I love you simply because you're my son. You, you got to get this this morning because some of us have 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 literally hinged us coming back to the Lord on what we've done. <laughs> oh, I can't come back. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, my even my, some of my own neighbors. Like, man, oh, I can't come to church because as soon as I walk in church, that whole place is going to burn down. You know, I got some stuff that I'm dealing with. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I remember in the very first beginning, uh, I had a guy, when we first started the church about three years ago, he's like, man, I just, I don't want to go to the church, you're just full of a bunch of hypocrites. It's like, dude, you'll fit right in. You'll fit, come on. Right? We, we all can make excuses of why we don't feel like we belong or why we don't feel worthy. And then the father gives him sandals. Now, this is Significant. Because if you remember when we read the story, the son says, you know what, I'm gonna go back and I'm just tell dad, I don't need to be a son, dad. I'll be a servant. And the father goes, I know you asked to be a servant, but I'm denying that you're a son. Here's the sandals. Because the sandals were a sign of royalty. It was a sign of wealth. Only sons wore sandals. Servants wore nothing. So the father is not looking on you based on what you have done or what you haven't done because that doesn't make you worthy. You know what makes you worthy? The cross. Jesus looking down at humanity and said, you know what, God? Don't wipe them out. Throw all your wrath on me. Throw all your wrath on me. I'll pay for it. The son has requested the status of a servant and he's been denied. In an instant, he gets restored as a son. See, the cross for many people in southwest Louisiana is just a decoration. It's something we tattoo on our arm, <laughs> it's something we wear around our neck. It's a bracelet that we have. The cross is not a decoration, it's a declaration that, that says there is no sin that I didn't die for. There is no past too ugly, there is no shame too big, there is no chasm in your life too wide. The cross is a bridge saying, God, I'll do whatever I need to take, whatever I need to do to get to them. So let me explain to you why this story is about the cross and it's about the resurrection. This story is about the cross and it's about the resurrection because it's saying this, wherever you're at in the journey, Christ died for you. And whenever you decide to come home, it's not contingent on what your past looks like, he'll accept you wherever you're at. This is why in the New Testament, he says, come all who are heavy burdened and I'll give you rest. He doesn't say, go home, clean yourself up first and then come to me. That never works. He says, just come how you are. No judgment, no shame. Come how you are because if you come how you are, God goes, I can work with that. And then the resurrection is simply a declaration that says, you may feel too far gone just like that prodigal son sitting in that pigsty. What have I done? You may look at a marriage right now and say, it's over, it's dead. You may look at a relationship right now and say, it's over, it's dead. You may look at your finances right now and go, God, there's nothing that can change. The resurrection is a declaration that says, guess what, I resurrect dead things. You know what's interesting? Every person that Jesus ever resurrected, like Lazarus, still died. Think about that. Kind of suck if you were Lazarus, right? Like, man, I got to die again. (laughs) Jesus overcame death. On the third day when he walked out of the tomb, he said, even death can't defeat me. So that means that anything that you look at, at in your life and you say, it's over, the resurrection is a testament that it's not. And then what I love, and I'll bring this to a close in five minutes, is Jesus takes an entire shift in this story. The entire story, he's been talking to the lost person. And then he shifts and he goes, hold on, let me address the religious person. The person that says, you know what, God, I've been good. I go to church every Sunday. I pay tithe. I'm in a life group. I don't curse on the weekends. <laughs> I don't, like, and you look at all your deeds and you say, God, I've been good. Why aren't you doing this? I owe, you owe me something. Watch Luke 15. Jesus is about to show us a different element of this story. Now his older son, who was in the field, as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked him, what does all this mean? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. His father came in and treated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years, notice the bitterness. These many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commandment. It's like, I've always gone to church with you, dad. <laughs> I've always honored you, yet you never gave me a goat. This would be the equivalent of saying you never got me a car. We don't get people goats anymore, right? That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father says, my son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. And he said to him, son, your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he's found. and It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. The fifth point that I wanna make speaks specifically to the religious person, the person that has grown up in church their entire life, the person that has tried to do every good thing and has maybe bought into the lie that the good things that you do is what makes you a Christian. Number five, God loves you even when you're too proud to receive his grace. Because you see, the brother on the surface, he, he surely looks like a Christian. The brother on the surface stayed, right? He didn't wander off. He didn't spend dad's money. He wasn't sleeping around. He served. He was faithful. But there's a subtle detail in this story. That when the prodigal returns, it says the brother was outside of the house. Listen, you can grow up in church and still not have the heart of the house. You can hear the name of Jesus for 30 years and still not know Jesus. And just because we do good things does not make us a Christian. The religious person is something like this, who's lived a good life and we genuinely believe that God owes us something. The problem with the religious is this. We're very intentional about making sure that everybody has a high view of us so that we appear good in front of everybody else. But here's the problem if you create that reality for yourself, is that when you struggle, you have nobody to go to. Because now you've created the illusion that everything is okay in your life. Can I be honest with you? Paul even invites us into saying, don't buy into that. He says, your weakness is your way to Christ. In your weakness, you are made strong. In your struggle, you were made strong. But the religious person says, no, 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 i got to protect this shell. I can't let anybody know that I'm weak. I can't let anybody know that I struggle. I'm representing God. I cannot tell you how many people have been more hurt, not by lost people, but by religious people. People have animosity towards the church, not because of lost people, but because of church people. (laughs) That's because religion cleans up the outside without ever changing the inside. Religion is like something that happened to my two young kids. Years ago, my two older boys would fight over who gets what towel when they get out of the bath. We used to have green towels and brown towels. They'd always want the green towel because the brown towel was the color of poo. And they'd fight over it. I don't want the brown towel. And so they'd take a bath and Isaac would always jump out of the bath first. He'd grab the green one. And they'd get in this huge argument. You come in as a dad, like, it's a towel. It's a towel. And so I'm like, you know what? We're gonna have a real heart-to-heart father-son moment. I'm about to share something that's gonna change his life forever. He'll never forget it. I'm like, son, you know what Jesus says? He says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last in heaven. So man, if you just let him have the towel, maybe one day in heaven, you'll be first. I'm thinking, like, man, I just rocked his world, changed his life. Right? <laughs> Isn't that usually what happens as parents? Are like, I'm just gonna have this moment of wisdom, and then your child's like, what? <laughs> so I have this moment, and then I hear screaming the next day arguing. You always get the Isaac, you're gonna be lost in heaven! <laughs> and I'm like, you missed it, son. <laughs> not why I told you this story, so that you could use it as a weapon. (laughs) But that's what religion looks like. We weaponize the truth. We use the truth to maim people, to hurt people, to kick people out of our doors because they don't think like us, they don't look like us, and they don't act like us. What a tragedy. Because the last time that I read the Bible, the main majority of people that Jesus was with would blow your mind. He was with tax collectors. He was with prostitutes. He was with sinners. He ate dinner with people that would shock you. Why? Why did he do this? He was accused so many times. And he said, well, well, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick, isn't it? Religion is cleaning up the exterior without changing the heart. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, listen, on that day, Judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do good things in your name? Did we not follow the rules? He said, yeah, you you did all the rules. But he said, you missed it because you never knew me. God's not interested in your good deeds. He wants your heart. And if he gets your heart, guess what? You'll do everything that he wants you to do. It's like when you fall in love with a husband or a wife. You don't love them out of obligation. You love them because they've captured your heart. Therefore, you want to serve them. It's the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. You fall in love with Jesus first, and then you do because you begin to realize, oh my God, he paid this much for me. You ever had somebody pick up the tab, pay for your check, pay for a meal? You go, I'm not worthy of that. Why why did they do that? You wanna pay it back? It's the same thing when you dive into a relationship with Jesus. And God can't change your heart if you're just resolving to go, well, I'll do better. No, God says, no, push all the chips on the table and you give me everything. Which leads me to six. If you had this card, would you pull it out with me real quickly? Last point. Truth is, it's your choice. You can choose to stay outside of God's love forever, or you can make a decision today to say, you know what, no longer. The story of the prodigal son never resolves. We 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 never know if the older brother receives the father. We never know if he goes back inside. Does he make amends with the father? What happens to the older brother? But it never resolves because I think Jesus intended it for it to be an invitation. Going, hey, look, it's it's in your hands. That's why he gave us a free will. Think about it. Love would not exist without free will. Nobody nobody wants to love somebody robotically. Well, I love God because I have to, right? God goes, no, I love you enough. It's your choice. God won't force you into it. I'm not gonna force you into it. You have to choose to receive it. But I want you to understand that Easter is not an experience. Sorry, Easter is not an event. Easter is an experience, You encounter the living, active resurrection of Jesus Christ.